This week we get to start a brand new series. We start our 4BG series. If this looks familiar to anybody, it's because this is the third year in a row at this exact time of the year that we have chosen to do something about activation. We even called it 4BG last year. So if you go, hey, this graphic looks like you're just reusing old things now. Exactly what we're doing. What we know to be true in this season of holidays and uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and all the things that are coming up is those are typically centered around family. And it's a really easy chance for everybody to look inward as you get to your holiday traditions and you pick up your family from the airport or you're driving over to grandma's house or whatever that looks like. We, it's our time to tend, tend to look inward. And so what we want to do in this season every year is build on all the things we've been learning and actually begin to do them as a way to challenge ourselves out of the inward-focused uh, lane and get back into an outward-focused state. And so when we think of Thanksgiving, if you polled Americans about what they love most about Thanksgiving, they'll say turkey, they'll say stuffing, but they'll mostly say family. And, and so part of the reason we have this kind of subversive idea that we're going to host a Thanksgiving dinner that's with people from thousands of miles away because, because we want to be a family unlike any other. And so 4BG is this extension of that, and it's also interesting because we have people from all over the region. Uh, this may start here, but when, if you're from Perrysburg, this should say for Perrysburg in your, in your mind. If you're from Western or Waterville, that we have people from all over the region that come in, and this is kind of the hub, and yet this should represent something. That every community that we are in, every neighborhood that we populate, we have a chance to be for the wholeness and the fullness and the flourishing of that place. And so while we will call it 4BG because we are a church in BG, we know that there are people all over the region that are actively pursuing the mission to know Jesus and make him known in your context. And so if you work in BG, but you live elsewhere, if you live here and work elsewhere, any combination of the above, the next few weeks are a personal challenge to each of us is how do we become the hands and feet of Jesus in our everyday lives? So saying all that, I would argue that what we need to do as a community, what we need to do as a church, as a modern church, is, is we need to actually know the needs of the city around us. We've talked about this. What are the broken places? What are the ditches in our society? And then how do we bring hope and healing to those areas? And I would say that Jesus showed us how this happens. And so we're just going to get straight into the text in Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you do not, I want to sometimes make mention that we have a whole shelf of these out next to the coffee serving area. If you want a Bible, need a Bible, or know someone who would like a Bible, these are free. They're for you. And so if you can find the shelf that has nothing but blue books on it, take as many as you like, and we will continue to replace them because uh, it's God's word. So let's read it. It says, when Jesus had crossed, again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, he came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, with awe and reverence, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. 
We pick up Jesus in the story, having just calmed a storm with his mere words, having healed a man possessed by demons, and he arrives on the opposite side of the lake, and he's, he's met there by large crowds, and they're, they're traveling with him. They're pressing in on him. It's hard for us to get a picture of that. It's hard for us to imagine. Do you remember when I was growing up, Michael Jackson was the thing. If, if Michael Jackson landed at an airport, there was a large crowd and they pressed in. I, I have this, this memory burned in my, my mind and they would always show, he'd always be in Yugoslavia for some reason. And at the concert, there'd just be like girls fainting everywhere. Remember this? And there was like a whole team of people that would just pull out fainting people from Michael Jackson concerts because they pressed in and they'd get close enough and they would just, they'd collapse. I was once in the airport in Johannesburg, South Africa, and, and word got out that Nelson Mandela was in the airport. It's a massive airport. It's the largest airport in Africa. And yet the word was that Mandela's in the airport, and people, we were eating in like the food court area, and people got up and just left their food and went to figure out where Mandela was. And, and you can look over from this elevated area where we were, and you could see where he would have been coming through, and the crowds began to press in, even on the mere speculation that he might come out through that door. This is what Jesus was experiencing. Jesus, having done these incredible things, the word has gotten out, his reputation precedes him, and as he comes in, the large crowd is with him, and they're pressing in upon him. Important religious leader, we should note, Jairus pleads with him. This is important because we often in our modern culture will hear people diminish Christ. He was a fringe teacher, kind of a lunatic, kooky kind of guy, and this is how people will say, yeah, there's not a whole lot of credibility in your Christ. And we can continually point back to eyewitness testimony of where the religious leaders of the day, the authorities of the day, the respected of the day, those were the people that were pressing in. And they weren't just saying, hey, by my authority, I'd like you to come help me. The religious leader of the day is pleading with Jesus to help him, which is an incredible amount of credibility that it puts on the place of Jesus. That he didn't walk as some fringe teacher that the people kind of just acknowledged. That the, the people with power in his culture saw Jesus as a place of great authority and power. So Jesus goes with him. And then this plot twist shows up in this woman who was subject to bleeding. She, with her uh, disease, was ceremonially unclean. She would have been ostracized from society because of Jewish law that anyone who touched her or was touched by her would also be unclean. So people couldn't associate with her without becoming unclean themselves. She hadn't been allowed in public worship for 12 years. She would not have been allowed in the temple. And so not only do people want to avoid her, but the exclusion from the temple means that she had been deemed unacceptable from the presence of God. Imagine the loneliness of 12 years of having to avoid people lest you taint them, of not being allowed to go and worship of not being allowed to hear the written script. What else we know by reading about her is she was a woman of means. Said she had been treated by many doctors, which was not a common thing. And so she was not just some poor widow who happened to be afflicted. She was a woman of great means. And yet despite her means, and maybe this should tell us something in our abundant society, despite her means, she couldn't buy her own healing. That no amount of physical physicianship could do for her what Christ did. People feared her, wanted to avoid her. Had they been uh, infected by her, had they been deemed unclean by proximity to her, they would have had to go through a whole list of of kind of complicated purification rituals themselves. Spring-fed baths and, and sacrificing doves. And so it was just cleaner for everybody to avoid her. So in desperation, she's in a crowd. 
Imagine avoiding people. Imagine avoiding the temple. Imagine being avoided, and then you're so desperate, and you hear that this Christ is coming, and he's come across the lake, and he's healing people, and the demons are being sent out, and you go, I will risk it. And as the crowd presses in, she's among them, meaning she's being pressed against too, and she is aware that she is making others unclean around her just by her presence with them. But her desperation is such that she doesn't care anymore. She has to get to Jesus. Try to create a picture of what that might look like of all these people crowding in one area, of all this this movement and this chaos and this noise as she presses in. And then it hit me. Two weeks ago, for the third time in my life, I attended the Apple Butter Festival. (laughs) And there were people everywhere. And they were pressing it at all angles. And there were people fighting over the last carved wooden pumpkin thing that said, Happy Fall, y'all, in burlap with sparkles. I need one of those. They're everywhere. Meanwhile, children are screaming on hay bales and dads are checking the NFL scores on their phone and others are carrying around enormous yard ornaments that they did not know how they're ever going to get home. This is what it felt like. People are pressing in everywhere. There are moments at certain events in your life you feel like you could have picked your feet up and just kept moving. Like you were close enough with everybody else. You just would have kind of kept going with the stream. So she's undeterred by the crowds and the chaos. She's undeterred by what she's experiencing. And she presses in and it says she touches his cloak. And most commentators would tell you, would believe this to be a reference to his talit, a ceremonial Jewish piece of clothing, a four-cornered garment that at the each at the bottom has eight strings, each tied into a series of five knots. The tassels that you see, if you see an Orthodox Jew today, underneath their clothes, you'll see there's tassels hanging out. That's called tzitzit, but it's just the tassels. It's the fringe. And they were to be worn as, uh, and commanded in the book of Numbers as a way to remind righteous men to follow the commands of God. And so in this really interesting thing, in Jewish world, numerology, like numbers and, and words have, have numerical values. It's a whole thing, and we could spend too long there. But what you need to know is uh, Tzitzit had the number of 600. You add up the letters, and it equals 600. And then there were these eight strings tied into five knots each, and so you have 608 and five, and you get 613, which is the number of commandments in the Old Testament. And so this was like, if there's such thing as sacred garments, this is a sacred garment, and each man would wear this as his reminder that he has to be obedient to the the law that has been laid out. Jesus, being a Jew, would have had this. So she reaches out, she she grabs on to the, the fringe of his garment, Unable to be healed by practices, by rituals, by the doctors of the day, she appeals to a greater holiness. And in the mass of people, Jesus notices the individual. And he says, who touched me? To which his disciples are like, what? It's apple butter, Jesus. Look, they're just people. And he's like, no, no. Somebody, Somebody touched me. And you see them looking at each other as you read through the story. You see them looking at each other like, oh gosh, here he goes again. Everybody is touching him. What is he talking about? And yet Jesus keeps looking. And when he and the woman, they find each other, she tells him, it says, the whole truth. As if they have a conversation. Jesus enters into a relationship with the individual in the midst of the masses. Do you ever feel small when you think about God? You think that there's seven billion people and one you? Jesus enters into relationship with the individual. 
in the midst of the masses. In essence, saying, ignore all of them, ignore the noise and the chaos, and talk to me. As he departs from her, he calls her daughter, which would be a really weird thing to say to somebody you just met. It's a familial term, it's a personal term, it's a deeply relational term. It shows us that Jesus is not afraid of getting intimate with someone who the society would deem as unpleasant. He's not afraid of getting close to someone who society would avoid. Why? Because at its core, ministry is relational. Maybe there's a sermon in here about Jesus notices the fringe, right? That could be a whole sermon. Maybe about Jesus knows our secret sin and our secret faith. She touched him with a faith that she might be healed, and he knew it. What we see is that ministry and healing happen in relationship. And you could ask the question, well, what about the other guy? She left him to go deal with this. Jesus leaves Jairus to go and deal with the woman, but what about him? What about his daughter? What about she was sick? What was going to happen? So we keep reading. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all of this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were there with him. And he went in to where the child was and he took her by the hand again, touch. And he said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. The end of the story is particularly interesting to me that Jesus performs a miracle. This girl has died and he's, with a touch, raises her up. And like a concerned parent or an uncle everybody loves, he goes, hey, mom, dad, she's, she's kind of hungry. He doesn't glide off into a cloud. He immediately begins to see to her actual physical needs. The stories should be familiar. If we put them side to side, the two stories of the woman and this, this little girl, they should be really familiar. They should look almost the same. How? In the midst of commotion and chaos, in the midst of people pressing in, a touch heals. And Scripture says heals immediately. It didn't look so good for a minute. She's dead, they said. It took too long, they said. This happens more than once in Jesus' life. And when he says, Talita kum, he takes her by the hand. He says, little girl, get up. And it's an Aramaic phrase. And what's really interesting is Mark puts an Aramaic phrase into his gospel, into his letter to the people. He's writing to a Greek-speaking Roman audience and decides to leave one phrase of the whole thing untranslated. Let me put this Aramaic phrase in here. It must have been profoundly important that the original intent came through, that the original heart and feeling behind that phrase specifically comes through. The best way we can translate that might be, honey, it's time to wake up. It's a tender phrase. It's a delicate phrase. It's the way that a parent would go into their child's room in the morning. They've overslept, they're late for school, and, you, and you're trying not to startle them, and you go in and you rub them on the arm or you kiss them on the forehead, and you go, child, it's time to wake up. It's intimate. 
and personal, deeply relational. Is there chaos in your life? Is there commotion in your life? In both of these stories, we have chaos and commotion. There's so much going on. There's noise and there's distraction. And in both of them, Jesus tunes out all the noise and comes and gives a personal touch. How many of us need that? Again, Jesus makes ministry profoundly relational, but not in the way we think of relationship in 2018. It would be an easy thing for us to go, okay, ministry is relational. I got it. And yet the way we experience relationship in 2018 is so fundamentally different than the way Jesus would have experienced it. People followed Jesus. He got in the boat and went across. They got their own boat. They hire boats. They go across to follow him and, and figure it out. 2018, what do you do if you want to follow Jesus? Click follow. And you got Jesus on Twitter. You can even set up alerts so if he tweets something, it'll come straight to your phone. Jesus had no microphone. So if you wanted to hear him, you pressed in because there was no amplification. So if you wanted to hear what he's teaching to his disciples and you wanted to know more about it, you couldn't sit back and wait for the podcast. You pressed in because you had to hear it or else it was gone. Jesus' ministry was proximate and physical. It was proximate and physical. His healing was proximate and physical when he dealt with the lepers or the blind or the dead. Notice what there always is, the touch. With the blind, could have easily sat back, shot lightning bolts out if he wanted to. Your eyes are healed. And yet there's mud and there's spittle. There's deep intimacy. There's touch. Jesus was close enough to people to touch them. And his touch healed them. The question for us as a community is, are we close enough to people who need a healing touch to actually offer it? Are we in relationship with people who actually need that healing touch? Or do we know people who don't know Jesus? Are we close enough to those who don't know Christ that if they had a need, we might offer them the ultimate healer? Jesus had conversations around the well or at the tax collector's table. He ministered to the rich and the poor. He ministered to the high and the low. For Jesus, everything is relational. For Jesus, no one is beyond redemption. There are people that you have access to in your life that I never will. And there are people that I have access to that you'll never know. It is upon us to begin to relate to the people that God has given us access to, to begin to open our lives up to them, begin to see what their needs are, to begin to offer healing in something greater than what society might offer. Every task is relational. All healing is relational. Ministry is relational. The mission is relational. How many people love to help other people move? It's like you love getting the call that one of your friends is moving, and we need you to carry some really heavy things down some stairs. Let the record state, I see no hands. (laughs) Why does anybody help anyone move? helping somebody move yesterday. And as we're carrying heavy things down slippery stairs in a misty, cold morning, you ask the question, why would I help somebody move? Is it because I love the task of moving? Or I love the person I'm in relationship with? Tasks are relational. Healing is relational. The mission is relational. Talk about the Global Connections Thanksgiving. 
And this year we're doing something a little different. To the international person showing up, they might not notice anything different. Still going to have corn over here and salad over there, and there'll still be some dancing, and there'll still be music, and we'll still have a blast, and someone will eat turkey. It'll be great. But I was talking to Steve Bainey, the director of Global Connections, and I said, look, I don't know why we do this for you. And he was like, what? It's like, this is a task. We're just doing a thing for you. But you keep telling me that your mission is that we might relate to people. And this is just a big task. And I can get a lot of people involved. We can do it because we've done it for years, long before I was ever here. And it's an awesome day. But it's not actually accomplishing what you set out to do. And he goes, I'm listening. He goes, maybe we should do something different. I said, maybe we just introduce relationship into the event again. And so we were talking about it, and it's something as simple as we're going to create a little card. And everybody who shows up, when you drop off your turkey or you're coming to have dinner or you're just here to, to serve, you're setting up tables, you're going to get a card. And the challenge will be the card will have two little blanks for names, two blanks for emails, and two little checkboxes for connecting on Facebook because that seems to be where everybody is. And the challenge will be when you come and bring your turkey, when you drop off your stuffing, when you bring the ice, when you set up the table, you'll be given the card. And the challenge will be don't just do the task. Did you meet someone? Are you growing in relationship with, with two people? Can you learn their name, get a contact information, and just begin a relationship? Not save them, not invite them to move in with you. Just start. Start small. But the radical change that will happen from that first domino tipping is something we have to consider. That it isn't just a task that we do that when it's done we feel good about ourselves and we've moved on because relationship isn't resolvable that way. Relationship can't be boiled down into a checkbox. It's that Facebook checkbox that says, have you reached out now? Task is easy. Relationship is messy. And the truth is you can't introduce two people if you only know one of them. Think about this. You cannot introduce two people if you only know one. When I was growing up, I played baseball with country legend George Strait's son. I don't really like country music very much, so I wasn't impressed. But other people heard that and like, well, can you introduce us? I love George Strait. And the reality was, I played with his son, but I didn't know him. And so I can't introduce you. Actually, no, I can't. I said I played baseball with country legend George Strait's son. I can introduce you to his son, who's not a very good baseball player, <laughs> but not him. And, and it was this like, oh, so you don't actually know George Strait. I was like, well, I never said I did. And yet we look around our world, and there are a lot of people that desperately need to know Jesus. The question is, do we know them? And those of us in this room that do know Jesus and know the healing and the wholeness and the flourishing that he provides, how can we introduce someone to Jesus if we don't know the person who needs him? And so our job becomes finding our way into relationships where somebody might have a need that we can then pair up and make that introduction. I was talking to Robert McMahon, who's one of our crew staff people with his wife, Jenny, and he said, well, crew says it this way. We're talking about this exact thing. And he goes, crew says everyone, their mission is that everyone would know someone who knows Jesus. I was like, that's brilliant. The simple goal is that everyone would know someone who knows Jesus. And if everyone knows someone who knows Jesus, then every single person on that campus has the opportunity to be introduced to Christ in a one-to-one we're not playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon, and if you know six different people, maybe we can tell you about Jesus. Every single person, that's the goal. It's beautiful. Tasks can be completed, and they can be resolved. Relationship has no end. It's irresolvable. And this is the way of Jesus. When we engage our community, when we engage those around us, 
We have open-ended sacrificial relationships that don't end. Why? Because we look at the life of Christ and he says, go and do likewise. We look at what he did. He knew our need and he came to know us and he lived our experiences. He became proximate and physical to see us healed. More than that. Remember when the woman touched his robe and immediately she was healed? Scripture says the power went out from him. What a perfect, beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus becomes proximate and physical with her and she gets close enough for a touch. And when she does, the power goes out from him. Jesus was drained of life on the cross so that we might know life. Jesus gave up power so that we might be healed. Jesus looks at us and says, Talita kum. Hey, child, come on, wake up. Jesus is offering us a daily invitation to come alive. Come alive. Wake up. He's not lying to us about what it'll cost us. Take up your cross. Follow me. It'll be worth it. It's going to cost you. Time, yes. Resources, yes. Heartbreak, absolutely. Have you ever been in relationship? But it's worth it. Jesus says, come alive, wake up. Jesus invites us to leave behind our sleepwalking existence, our cultural Christianity, and to enter into gospel wakefulness where we experience his fullness as we share it with others. Jesus invites us to leave behind our sleepwalking existence to enter into gospel wakefulness where we experience his fullness as we share it with others. 4BG is our willingness to wake up and be physical representation of Jesus in the world around us. To introduce people to a healer and a savior because we were first made known. We know Jesus. Our mission to know Jesus and make him known. Most people in this room would go, yeah, I know Jesus. To make him known, we have to truly know the people who need the introduction. If we're going to fulfill the mission we set out to fulfill, we actually have to know the people to whom we're making him known. Because all of ministry and all of our mission ultimately is relational. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for relating to us. Thank you for seeing us in our need for becoming proximate, for knowing our experiences, for walking this earth, for giving your life. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice and your resurrection. Father, I pray that as we, as a community, consider the truth of Christ, that we would consider our own lives in reflection. Father, where is it that we can find sacrifice would you open our eyes to that? Where is it that we can find relationship? Would you show us? Where do we have opportunities to make you known, to introduce you and your hope and your healing and your mercy and your grace? Father, give us the eyes to see the opportunities around us that we might make divine, eternal introductions. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We pray in his name. Amen.